Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. Hi, I'm Giancarlo Esposito, and I'm here to introduce you to my new series, Parish. My character, Gray Parish, was a getaway driver. I'm retired from life. You know that. He's in a world over his head. Tell me about this driver job. And he's asked to start to figure things out. I did what you told me to. He will try to do what's right and seek justice. Parish, all new Sundays at 9 on AMC and stream on AMC+. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, my chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers, to hear their stories, what inspires their creations, what decisions changed their careers, what relationships influenced their work. This week, conservation, a subject I'm deeply committed to. My guests today are passionate about protecting two very different locations— Rob Snyder helps island and remote coastal communities in Maine adapt to changing environmental and economic factors. But first, I sit down with Andrew Berman, the executive director of the Greenwich Village Society for Historic Preservation. Berman goes after the big dogs in New York City real estate, like NYU and Donald Trump, and he and his team can count many victories. Under his direction, the society secured landmark protection for over 1,000 buildings. I wanted to know about his biggest heartbreak, the building that got away. I expected him to bemoan the upcoming expansion of the Chelsea market pushed through by Christine Quinn, former Speaker of the New York City Council and mayoral candidate. But I got a very different response. You know, this is going to sound sort of strange, but one of my personal uh, favorites that we lost was this beautiful building called the Tunnel Garage, which, believe it or not, was a parking garage, um, <laughs> which you would never think who would care about a parking garage. It was one of the the first purpose-built parking garages in New York. It was this beautiful Art Deco building that had a medallion on it that was an image of a Model T Ford emerging from the Holland Tunnel, which hadn't even yet been built when this tunnel, which was built near the entrance to the Holland Tunnel. Where was this? Um, this was on the corner of Broom Street and Thompson Street, so sort of at the edge of Soho, the South Village. Beautiful building. I mean, it really, if there's a parking garage anywhere on earth that people would rhapsodize about, it was this one. And it had been on sort of lists for years of a building to be saved. A developer came along and bought it and said, you know, I just want to tear it down and build a slightly larger condominium building here. How many stories? Uh, eight stories. How many units? 
Uh, I think about 30 or so, you know, a a pretty bland, you know, sort of you'd never look at it. building. You'd never look at it twice. What's another example? Well, here's one where sort of the opposite. There was a a vacant lot at the northern end of the Greenwich Village Historic District, and there was a plan to develop it, which we had no objections to. You know, vacant lots are there to be developed. Um, But the developer put forward a proposal for this 13-story curving, entirely glass-walled building in the Greenwich Village Historic District. And we thought, that's ludicrous. You, that would never never be approved. What does right. that have to do with the Greenwich Village Historic District? The notion is new development in these areas should kind of fit the character. They don't have to mimic it. It doesn't right. have to be like Some a faux townhouse. Some compatibility. The um, commission unanimously ap- approved it, which we were really taken aback by. Um, what's one that was a tremendous victory for you? Where's, where's something where you guys really fought and you scored? I'd say one of the ones that we're most proudest of is uh, the part of Greenwich Village south of Washington Square, what we often call the South Village, uh, the part of Greenwich Village that everybody associates with, you know, the, the, the folk revival, the beatniks in the 1950s Bleaker and Street. 1960s, Bleecker, McDougal, that area, yeah. amazingly was uh, not protected by landmark protections. Any of those buildings could have been demolished and replaced with pretty hideous— Beach of New York. Yes, very much so. Um, and uh, after really 50 years of people trying to get that area landmarked, we were able to get it landmarked uh, in two what stages. What did it take? Uh, it took uh, uh, thousands of people really coming together and pushing the city. In one part of it is we actually had to almost sort of blackmail the city. They wanted to get an area adjacent to that rezoned as basically a sort of fe- uh, a sop to a, a developer, Trinity Real Estate in this case. Um, and we pushed the city council to say – we won't approve the rezoning that you, the city, want unless you move ahead with this landmarking that the community has been asking for for years. So we really kind of backed them into a corner. Um, and we, uh, to be honest, we sort of used um, election year politics as a bit of a cudgel. Um, you know, people were trying to look like they were being friendly to the community. So uh, we were able to make them do something that they had not wanted to do and had been unwilling to do for years. What area do you live in yourself? Uh, I actually live in Hell's Kitchen. Um, so I, I'm <laughs> a bit further to the north. Um, but I'm a lifelong New Yorker. Right. Um, I've worked in the village. You grew up where? I grew up in the Bronx, but I've been working in the village and on the west side of Manhattan since uh, uh, for over 20 years. And where did you go to school? Uh, I went to Bronx High School of Science. Right. Um, so I've lived in New York my whole life. What about college? Where did you go? Uh, I went to Wesleyan University. What did you study? Uh, art history with a focus on architecture and urban okay. planning. Talk about, if you would, uh, what happened to Christine Quinn with the Chelsea Market. Mm. Because of, of my understanding is correct, that was in her district. Yes. And I want to be very clear that during that political race, I endorsed de Blasio and worked mm-hmm. for de Blasio and did not support Quinn. And this is not, you know, to bash Quinn at all, but describe what happened in that Chelsea Market thing and what you think was going on, sure. the pressures that were on her. Yeah. Well, so, you know, Chelsea Market is this uh, old industrial complex built by Nabisco uh, in Chelsea. Um, that it was had, a Nabisco factory. It was a Nabisco factory. It was where the Oreo was invented. Yeah, it was um, a bakery. Yeah. And who developed into into the current Chelsea Market? How long ago? It was originally a, another group of people, including a guy named Erwin uh, Cohen, and that was in the late 1990s. It had been sitting there basically abandoned, um, and he came up with this idea that everybody thought was crazy at the time because this was a, a real backwater 
15 years ago, of turning it into this re- huge retail mall. market yeah. um, with offices and things like that <laughs> I mean, above. like the gourmet food equivalent of a shopping yes. mall, yeah. Yeah, and it was wildly successful. You know, the neighborhood around it transformed. It's a huge building. It's a yeah. beautiful old building, but it's a huge building. And they have air rights up above? They did not have air rights up above, and that that's, that's where the key comes in with this. So they wanted to build basically two towers on top of this lovely old building, but they couldn't because they had no development. On top of the eight stories that are already there? On top of the building that already exists. So they came to the city and they said, we want you to rezone us to give us these How many stories did they want? They, originally it was going to be, the addition was going to go up to something like 250 feet in the air or something like that. I mean, huge. And one on the west end, one on the east end. 20 stories. Yeah. Yeah, huge building, huge building. Um, And, you know, at this point, Quinn had already kind of shown herself to be very willing to be accommodating to developers. So we knew this was going to be an uphill battle um, at best, although Chelsea was where she was from. And a lot of the people who were very adamantly opposed to it were people she'd known and worked closely with for years. Uh, We were opposed to it as well. And she did eventually approve it. A slightly scaled back version made it a little less, a little less bad. As the work started already? No, and we're, it's not been clear to us why they haven't moved ahead yet. But they have all the approvals, so it's really up to them to go any time that they want. But this was definitely a, a disappointment. And what was particularly disappointing was that there were commitments that were quote unquote made as part of this approval about how it would have to remain all independent businesses. There couldn't be chain stores and all these other kinds of things, which it turned out none of these agreements were enforceable. It was really just sort of window dressing to this approval that the city gave them. And that's disappointing when you see things like that happen. When do buildings need to come down? Things have to change. Sure. And we need to make room for more people. Sure, is is that a reality for you? Oh, it's absolutely a reality. And, you know, we would Where never— Where did you acknowledge that one you wanted to save ultimately didn't need to be saved? I'll give you an example. There's uh, areas of— um, our neighborhoods where we've fought for new zoning that we thought would encourage good development as opposed to bad developments, which meant the expectation was things will get built. G- give know, us, give built. us an example of an area where this came into play. For instance, in the East Village, we, working with a coalition, were able to get almost the entire East Village rezoned. So the old zoning would have encouraged big, tall towers. It would have encouraged building things like dormitories and hotels, believe it or not. But isn't NYU, that's where NYU went to build a lot of their dormitories, didn't they? Uh, along 3rd Avenue and that area, yes. And we didn't want to see NYU take over the East Village. So we pushed for and got a rezoning that said, yes, there can be new development here, but the size and scale of it is going to be more like what you think of the East Village. Seven-story buildings, six-story buildings. This is what zoning does. You can get these what are called contextual zoning districts that says you can build, but to a certain height, certain number of square feet, things of that nature. So we've seen a lot of developments go up in the East Village under this new zoning that are so much much more in character with the neighborhood than what would have been built under the old zoning. So we weren't pushing there to say no new buildings or uh, nothing can ever be torn down, but that there should be new buildings, but it should really reinforce the character of the neighborhood. Just around the corner from our office, there was a huge parking lot that was just built on uh, with an eight or nine story building. Right next door to it is a dorm that NYU built a couple of years earlier that's uh, 26 stories. Um, There have been quite a few new buildings closer to the traditional campus. But this will be a whole additional campus for the university. Do you feel like um, the city, you turn around one day, you know, we have another subway tunnel. Mm -hmm. We have water tunnels that are coming in. I mean, the city is constantly, constantly, constantly being 
changed. And if you had one wish, I mean, I'm sure you have a laundry list of things. What's one wish of how you'd like things to change in the next Uh, 20 to 30 years? uh, You know, I mean, I think the biggest pressing issue facing New York is ensuring that it stays a place that's affordable and accessible for a broad range of people. So I'd say if, if I had one wish for the city, it would be that, that somehow we could, it could be a place where, you know, sort of the, the most successful, you know, innovators and, and zillionaires can live there and poor working folks and middle class people who are, you know, sort of raising kids or starting out or living on their own or sort of whatever. And everybody in between, you know, the immigrants the longtime residents. Um, and you and, see some of the steps that were taken mm-hmm. to allow for that, like Mitchell-Lama that's yes. dying. Yeah, and these buildings totally are dying. all being, yeah, that's, which I is tragic. I grew up in Mitchell-Lama housing, and it's it's tragic. For those who don't know, who are listening, that don't know what Mitchell-Lama housing was, this was an attempt back then to have the city develop property where developers would build affordable housing and manage it as affordable housing. I'm being very uh, uh, shorthand with this. And manage it as affordable housing for a given period of time, like 30 years right. or something. And then after a certain period of time, it would slowly devolve, if you will, uh, into or evolve into private housing. They would Mm -hmm. sell it as condominiums. And right now we're hitting that place where – Especially uh, in Manhattan, very few of them are left. A lot Um, of the Mitchell Lamas rolling over now to private condominiums. Which is really changing the city. But New Yorkers have resigned themselves to the fact that affordable housing itself, just like payphones, is a thing of the past. And now more and more people who never dreamed of going to Long Island City and to Mm -hmm. Astoria and to – and Brooklyn is just a part of Manhattan now Mm -hmm. in terms of how many people who live and work there and put their kids in school there but who work in the city and commute. More and more and more people have resigned themselves or even are happy. Mm-hmm. to commute. Mm-hmm. Have you, is that your experience as well? Yeah. And, you know, in some ways, I don't think it's such a bad thing that a lot of people who would have only considered living in Manhattan before now are living throughout the city. What I think would be a terrible thing is if Manhattan became a place that only the wealthy could live and that more and more the other boroughs, that became the case as well. I'm not sure that I know what the answer is. I mean, clearly, if we had a different political environment, we'd have things like Mitchell-Lama programs and other things to create and build affordable housing, saying this is an investment in our city's future. The construction is good. It creates jobs. The fact that we give good, affordable housing to people who we need to, you know, uh, to be teachers, to be firemen, to be uh, sanitation workers. We don't have housing for those people. Yeah. You know, we one of the first things that happened in New York years ago was the police were successful in argument against the residency requirement because mm-hmm. they said, you can't force me to live here because I can't afford the rent here on a policeman's salary. So they did away with. Mm -hmm. But, of course, this is a city where rather than build affordable housing for people like the police and have them invested in the community they live in, they all leave, which makes them somewhat less invested, I think, in the community they live in, although many of them come from uh, the city, it seems. We we could do a whole hour about the power of the real estate development community Mm. and the landlords and so forth in this. I mean, they run the city. Sure. They run the city. In so many ways. And they they run the city. I mean, what's gets built, what doesn't get built. Guys like you fight them and win because public outrage and public passions about these things still have some power. Right. Well, ultimately, government makes the decisions. And while certainly the people with money and access have enormous influence over them, the average people do because they vote. And if you if you exercise that um, strength that we have, and it's the only thing we have is the power of the vote, that's the way that we can affect these I outcomes. I want to finish with this. 
The society has an LGBT initiative for mm-hmm. some of the preservation. They do talk about that. A little sure. Bit. Uh, New York and especially the village really has such a wealth of sites connected to the LGBT, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, civil rights movements. I mean uh, – the one that everybody knows, of course, is Stonewall, where right. the riots took place in 1969, which in many respects— The Alamo kicked off. of the gay movement. Exactly. <laughs> right. um, uh, but there's many other ones as well. I mean, just around the corner from there, there's um, Julius's Bar, where in 1966 there was this sit-in or sip-in, as it was called, the first planned civil disobedience for gay rights. At that time, few people sort of know or remember this. It was actually illegal to serve alcohol to someone who you knew was a homosexual. Um, so it, it, it in essence— <laughs> made gay bars illegal. That's why they were all God, owned every by the hotel mob. in Tennessee Williams ever stayed and people were breaking the law. I know. He drank I know. a lot. Yeah. So uh, as a result of this, actually, there was a, a legal case that more or less changed that. Um, and so that I've was got to put that in a movie. I love that. Yeah. You know, back when there were very, very, very few places that gay people could meet, almost all of them were in places like Greenwich Village. And this year, in late June... Just a few days before New York City's annual Pride Parade, and after many years of behind-the-scenes politicking, Andrew Berman and his colleagues celebrated early. The Stonewall Inn won its New York City landmark status, making it the first site designated primarily for its significance to LGBT history. Take a listen to the Here's the Thing archives. I talk with another hard-working advocate, Josh Fox, the environmental activist whose film Gasland exposed the dangers of fracking. They would say, oh, your water's fine, and then they would go and get them a glass of water to drink. So, all right, well, if you think this is fine for my mother to drink, then you go ahead and drink it, and they wouldn't drink it. Take a listen at heresthething.org. Mother's Day is coming, and Mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get Mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get Mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. 
If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Today, more than ever, we're all looking for ways to save, especially on medical bills. But where do you start? Unless you're a medical billing expert, finding savings can seem impossible. And who has the time? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your family's insurance and reviews your medical claims as they come in from your healthcare providers. Then, HealthLock's technology flags and alerts you to any errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud to help you and your family save. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save more than $130 million. Saving on medical bills starts with knowing where to look. HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden medical bill errors. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Conservation isn't only about preserving urban sites, it's also about saving a way of life. Rob Snyder, president of the Island Institute, helps communities in remote coastal Maine thrive. I know a bit about fishing towns, having spent much of my life on Long Island. Pressures are different in eastern Long Island and rural Maine. Where I live, it's constant commercial development, but the struggle to survive as a working fisherman remains. Coastal Maine, as Rob Snyder explained, the situation is more remote. 1,200 people is the, the largest island community in Maine. Which one? Vinyl Haven, off of Rockland, Maine, mid-coast area. And, and they take know, a ferry? Yeah, you take a ferry out there. Yeah, you take a ferry. Year-round. Year-round, you can take a ferry. If you're on Matinicus, you have to take a bush pilot flight on Penobscot Island Air. Plane flies a couple times a day as long as the fog has lifted. And you can get year-round or just year, wintertime? Year-round. So there's no ferry service to— There's a monthly ferry. <laughs> <laughs> so, God, but, I want to go hang out with Why are we interviewing those people? <laughs> so, you know, I think that, interestingly, though, the kinds of pressure you're talking about, about how to conserve place and conserve community in places where the land is finite and in, so finite, um, you know— you really have a huge challenge in balancing conservation and community. Is there pressure to develop those islands? There really isn't the kind of pressure you're talking about. What you see more so is the, as property values escalate, the year-round community, the people who have been there for many generations, are having a harder time holding on, being able to pay their tax bills and, and stay on the islands. Whereas, there be, you know, whereas you're seeing increasing pressure. What's as, changed? Why is it harder? Why is it harder? I think there's uh, two things going on at once. I think you have uh, Maine is, as you point out, it's got an iconic st- stature. The, the the natural beauty of the place is absolutely stunning. And so it attracts people to the coast. And more remote. More remote, absolutely. People come there because they want to get away from right. 
um, they don't want the shadow populated. of New York. That's well, so which on Long Island. You're yeah, no, you don't talk too much about Long Island. They talk about yeah. the Cape and and other places they want to get. You don't away have from. Tiffany in Maine on, 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 on the Tinicus, do you? Do they have no. a Tiffany? No, they have not no Tiffany. even a Tiffany outlet store. Okay, they, yeah. If you want to shop, you do not go to the, a Maine island. Um, you know, it's it's a you know you also have pressure because so much land has been conserved over time, because the Maine coast has been a place for rustication for a hundred plus years. You had people come in and conserve large amounts of the Maine coast. And so the communities that are left in these places often are highly constrained to raise additional tax money to function as a town. Because a lot of the land is off the tax roll. Frenchboro has 80% of its land conserved. Um, were some of those families over the last hundred years, were they families we would know? Or they, oh, of course. For example. Yeah. I mean, the, the Rockefellers had so the Rockefellers the had a piece. presence up there as well. Yeah, and, and to their credit, they put some land aside for future development when they made the large land transaction. What we're thinking about now is, because more and more people still, can, as, as they should, want to consider how to conserve their land if they're, if they're going to sell it off or if, the, you know, because... Generations are changing. The younger kids don't necessarily want the property anymore. And they want the money. They want the money. And they also are potentially able to put that land into a land trust. So what what is the town going to do? Well, we're having a lot of discussions about how can you be really creative about conserved land so that you can actually contribute to the community's economy. So on Frenchboro, you know, they're looking at all all options for— For example. For example, um, could you put— a camping facility on some of that conserved land. And that's just one example. In other communities, this is a big tension on the coast of Maine. How much conserved land is enough is often the question. I think the kind of the better question is how can we take advantage of the economic opportunity that conserved land creates. But back then when somebody would have a piece of land, let's say it's a thousand acres and you have a compound somewhere and you pocket a few hundred acres, you pocket a couple hundred acres for your descendants and you're <laughs> going to leave land to people to build houses in the future sure. and then give away the rest. And now that's all kind of changed. Yeah, that's you know, right. That's all changed in terms of land well, use. and Well, and people are thinking about climate, like you mentioned, climate change. They're thinking about how can I use this land to actually make a difference in the place that I love. I've been coming here as a, since a child. You know, maybe I want to put a solar array on this piece of land, or maybe I want to put a wind turbine wind. on this piece of land. You know, How's wind doing up in Maine? I think it's doing well. The Island Institute worked with the North Haven and Vinyl Haven Islands off the mid-coast to build three wind turbines so that those communities could be energy neutral, right? They produce as much as they consume. Right. Alternative energy is 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 radically it's incredibly important because unless we stop it's inevitable it's inevitable but it's, and, until we stop putting carbon in the atmosphere sure. we're just going to destroy the ocean sure. the acidity and, of the ocean and, is yeah I mean it's just it's off cold the, plants it's, and exactly cars and I mean we're just Maine, the Gulf of Maine is a gigantic sink for CO two sure it's I mean we're seeing clams that are unable to build shell fast enough. Clammers who used to go fill a bucket with clams down in Casco Bay, which is off the city of Portland, you know, it's got a number of island communities there. They can't fill a bucket all the way anymore because it just crushes the shelves. I mean, it's it's incredibly sad. You know, in a time when the ocean is changing so much and you're seeing species move through your community, you're looking to diversify. You're trying to figure out what does the future hold for me? What are my economics, right? And so you see, you know, you see fishermen starting to experiment with investing in oyster aquaculture or looking at kelp 
growing kelp, you know, for Asian so you're markets. He- you're heavy into this fishing industry and this and this fishing. Well, fishing and energy conservancy and energy. Yeah, in these are big pieces of our work. I mean, you're, this is, you're trying to protect communities and lifestyle. I mean, the Island Institute is about sustaining island communities, island and right. remote coastal it's communities. It's not just about conserving land. It's really and preventing not. building on land. No, I mean, when That's we started 30 years ago, we, there's no question that people, you know, we we owned islands. We helped develop model um, experimental models for how you could reintroduce sheep to island private islands and how you could maintain pastures and how you could— Do home builders have an alliance there that you have to contend with there? No. I mean, we're, we are viewed as a bridge because that's ultimately— So the people who do live in the community year-round, what do they do typically? Well, you have a large service fishermen. sector. Yeah, right. so large service sector, a lot of caretaking, a lot of housekeeping, uh, we do have housekeeping you know, transportation, ferry transportation. You have people who um, do telecommute. We, so we have increasing number of people who are working online from the islands in Maine, and I think that's an important part of the future, I hope. You know, I see, I see that as being possible. Obviously, education, health care. The stuff you would expect, there's elder care facilities on these islands. There's beautiful schools, whether it's a one-room schoolhouse or a K-12 uh, school. You know, they, they're large employers as well as the municipality because we have, of course, a lot of local control in Maine. But and then the, the vast majority, the rest of it's fishing, right? It's, you know, you go to a place like Vinyl Haven, you have 350 boat captains and their crews living on that island, right? You have 6,000 lobster fishermen in Maine. It's the last large it's an incredibly small boat, but very large fleet fishery, right? So 6,000 of those guys, I think about 3,500 are active, actively fishing. Mm-hmm. You know, there's obviously folks who are retired and too young to be full-time. But, you know, that's a big, that's a big piece of the economy. That's why you hear me talking so much about this. Affordability is a big piece of it. We've made a lot of headway on that in recent years. A lot needs to still be done, but the average island income can only afford one half of the average island home price, right? So you, if you're a teacher and you're married to a fisherman, you're increasingly unable to afford a home in your own community. And we're, so we're very focused right. on how very do you, common where I, where I live as well. How do you transition? How do you help people? All the kids that left and went to college that came back, they couldn't afford a house. Yeah, so how do you help people transition in? But one of the big things that we're doing in Maine right now is investing a lot in kind of the infrastructure, the processing of seafood, the processing of lobster. How do you get enough capacity online to handle, you know, we, we caught uh, 125 million pounds of lobster last year and off the coast of Maine. A lot of it's getting processed over in Canada, right? And so we're moving those, trying to move those jobs to Maine. It was cheaper up there. It was cheaper up there. Well, and now you're going to make it cheaper down here? That's right. That's the idea. But then the, the, there aren't many people who want those jobs. They don't want them. They don't want to stand in the cold and pick lobster. <laughs> um, where are you from? I'm actually from Cleveland, Ohio. I'm okay. from the east side of Cleveland. Right. Yeah. And you grew up, what did your dad do? Um, my dad was, mom for that my dad's in insurance and my mom was a nurse. And um, Cleveland was a great place to leave. Sure. Oh, good <laughs> to leave. Oh, like, oh, my God, you got me there. I love Cleveland. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I I've come Cleveland. to love it a lot more since I left. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting. I, yeah. It's become a really it's a great cool town. place. It's since, a great town. You know, it, you know I, I, I kind of grew up with the... You know, the river on fire and the, sure. you know, the terrible stuff in the lake. Cuyahoga. And, yeah, and it's all it's all turned around. I had a hard time growing up there only because it felt like anywhere USA. And you left and where did you go to college? I went out to Colorado. Uh, Colorado now, why State. there? Because you wanted just the opposite. You wanted I, fresh I wanted, air. And- yeah, I mean, I had a transformative experience with Outward Bound. I was uh, able to learn 
mountaineering skills. So you're an and, outdoorsman. I mean, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's what drew me out west. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You no, look like the fresh air and getting outside. Yeah, absolutely. So I went out west and. You know, but I've always, you know, I thought I was going to run bike shops. That's what I thought I was right. going to do. I, I loved Or if you were biking. in Colorado now, you'd have a marijuana bike shop. <laughs> I would have. You'd I, sell I very well would, might. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll let my brother know that's an option. Now. Yeah. yeah um, so, I mean, I have family out there now, and I loved living out there. But again, you know, I got married. My wife's family's back here in New Hampshire. And, you know, we wanted to live near family, near the ocean, and get to know the coast of Maine. You were in Colorado how long? I lived in Colorado for 10 years. Wow. And, um, and when, when, what was part of the decision to leave there, it sounds? Whenever I go to Colorado, if you are an outdoors type, it's just Eden. It's just so beautiful. It is. Um, and when you wanted to leave there, you, you wanted to be near water? I, I really, I left because I was looking for real community. I felt like the front range of the Rockies was being overdeveloped and exploited, and it was horrible. It was a place I didn't want to live in the future. For, exploited for what? For available water, for thoughtless development. That's but what you my, didn't want to stay and fight that issue there. No, I, I actually, once I got married, you know, it was really important to my wife to be back near her family, which is New Hampshire. All right, so she was and a so, New Englander. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, but she, you went somewhere before Maine. It's true. I lived in Toronto. I, I lived in Canada for a while. And, right. you know, and I, I had thought for a long time, and, you know, this is one of these kind of crazy ideas you get at some point. You're just like, oh, I'm going to go live in China. And so I had this idea. <laughs> this, is, this is what I'm leading up to. Take me through this one. Yeah. So Where did um, China go? China came into it because I thought I wanted to get involved. Because you were a communist. In, oh, no. <laughs> I thought I wanted to get involved in international relations, and I thought that would be the place in the future where I'd be able to find work, getting involved with potentially helping the business community um, negotiate opportunities in China. I constructed this narrative in my head. You wanted to do without, some business. Yeah, yeah without um, having any experience or resources to back it up. But it was just a, it was an I'm idea. no different from you. I, I lay in bed at night <laughs> thinking, what have I got that those Chinese folks want? What can I get over there and sell? What do I have? So I, what I, DVD collection can I sell to the Chinese? <laughs> I went and studied over there as an undergraduate and got really interested instead in international development work. What really struck me, I lived in the southwest of China. There's 27 minority groups living in a province called the Yunnan province. Southwest China, it's south of the clouds is what the name stands for. And it's gorgeous. It's an incredibly uh, environmentally diverse area. It's got everything from the Tibetan Plateau down to the Mekong River, all on the same, all in the same province in one part of an incredible country. You know, in, in the readings I was doing in school, is all about you know, these gigantic international aid organizations and international development organizations, they come in and they tell the locals what to do, right? And they take stuff from them and they tell them how to live their lives. And, you know, and, and I thought people talk to each other. We're friends with each other. There's a way that money moves from USAID or Ford to a very local hill tribe on the border of Vietnam in China, I just wanted to go see it. I wanted to be, make some friends. And so I spent time exploring this kind of how, how is the rural economy of China evolving as a result of international aid? And, and it was very, I guess, probably not very surprising. But to me, I, what I learned was in China, these minority groups were going to be wearing their costumes and dancing for time immemorial so that tourists could come and watch them and appreciate them. Right. And I thought this is the classic kind of tourism development. It's like the Disneyfication of culture. 
And I also saw that it was made possible because at every step of the way, relationships were created, deals were cut. It was not some invisible hand of international money coming in and changing people's lives. It was people changing their own lives in ways that maybe they wanted those consequences. I don't know, but I wasn't going to make a value judgment. And I thought, well, I could spend the rest of my life over here and not change a thing. I could never make a difference. I felt like it was going to be impossible to have an impact in this world if I spent my time over in China. And I thought, you know, and I had met my wife and I said, you know what, let's go home. Let's go back to the U.S. and apply this energy and effort to trying to make the world a better place at home. How long were you in China? Oh, just for uh, collectively a year, right? Not a long time. You know, not a long time. I was there to get a preliminary research visa. And that was before or after Colorado? This is after Colorado. So 10 years in Colorado, then this yeah. little kind of uh, Spent a couple of years. sojourn over to China. Yeah, I was, that was part of graduate work. You I was knew working you wanted to go back to New England. Did you yeah. know when you were heading back to New England that this environmental-based work was what you wanted to do? Did you go there gunning I for that, that kind I of a job? I knew that I wanted to work in the nonprofit sector. What happened was that colleagues of mine in Toronto were at a bar on Prince Edward Island when— Staff from the Allen Institute were at the same bar on okay. Prince Edward Island. Okay. A lot of great things happen in bars. <laughs> Especially, yeah, in remote bars in yeah. Canada. Um, there you go. And so they, they got me into the Island Institute. They said, you, you should check out this place. These communities are really incredible. The challenges they face are remarkably complex. And, you know, you've got this background, even though it's over in China. Like, what about taking the thinking about how, to, how do you do smart work to help communities sustain themselves? How do you take into account the limits on the environment, and how do you take into account the social cohesion of small communities? How do, you, how do you bring those things together, those strengths that these places have, to help make them sustainable for years to come? Right? To me, that was an incredibly compelling mission. When I came to Maine, I thought I'd left China behind. I thought, there's nothing I'm going to see on the coast of Maine that's anything like China. And? And, you know, what I found was kind of surprising, right? That if we wanted to get involved in preserving a commercial fishing wharf so that fishermen could always go down to sea to make a living. And the only way to conserve that wharf was under the existing state statutes around land conservation. Scenic beauty, cultural importance, you know, open space. What nothing. I was describing, the limitations I was yeah, describing. Yeah, um, farmland, you know, like forest land. There are requirements. Yeah, there are requirements, but none of them applied to fishing, right? That... You know, like you figure, we on our flag, we have fishing, farming, and forestry in Maine. And um, farming and forestry have these land protections. There's nothing there to preserve access to the ocean for fishermen. And so we, that first piece of land, and I don't want to take too much credit here, there were groups, a lot of groups that worked on creating language that allowed that land to be conserved because of its scenic beauty. And the only, because that was what was available. So the aesthetic coding written into that initial easement on that wharf what does the architecture need to look like on that wharf? What kind of fisheries will be allowed to land there? I mean, you're having to design the future. And I thought, oh, my God, like, if we're not careful, we're going to have, like, the disnification of the lobster fishery. Right. You know, like, guys are going to have to right. wear their orange grundins and yeah. have lobster boats with certain lines. Smoking and, a corn cob pipe. Yeah, I mean, it's just could be, it yeah. could be the worst of all situations. And so, you know, I thought that's exactly what we don't want as an outcome. I don't want to ha- see what happened in China happen on the coast of Maine. So we, we changed the state's constitution, actually, to include fishing as a new category. When I think about what the future holds, it's if, we, if we're successful, the coast of Maine 
will really be a beacon for how we could live in this world because people will understand how to live within environmental boundaries. They'll know how to live relying on each other, right? They're going to, and they'll be, and the coast of Maine will be connected. It's going to, technology will allow the coast of Maine to be sharing what it's learned. Practical adaptations to climate change will be able to be shared easily with similar communities anywhere. That, to me, is the opportunity. For Rob Snyder, the current opportunity is to help Maine fishermen, both current and future, move beyond lobster as a source of income. He hopes there is money in kelp. He says it tastes great, by the way. And he is encouraging fishermen to add mussels, scallops, and oysters to their haul. This is Alec Baldwin. You're listening to Here's the Thing. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 